So we continue this series in John's Gospel and we're looking at the, the seven I am statements spoken by Jesus in the Gospel of John. And they're very important statements in Scripture. I am, meaning the self-existent one, uncreated, from the Greek phrase ego emi, referring to the very name of God. It's a uniquely divine character of God that we see in the person of, person of Jesus. And in looking at these claims, we want to learn more about God. We want to learn more about Jesus and how God wants us to relate to him. So tonight we continue to explore this theme. We've already looked at four of these I am statements. Back in John 8, um, we see Jesus saying to the Pharisees, before Abraham was, I am, in reference to how God revealed himself to Moses back in Exodus. And Jesus continued this claim, saying, I am the bread of life, in John 6. I am the light of the world, in John 8. And last week, John taught on, in the same chapter, verse 9, I am the door, Jesus says. And we'll stay in that chapter today. But we need to say that these are all affirmations of deity by Jesus. The I am statement bound up in the whole expression of whether it's the bread of life, the light of the world, the door. And we're going to expand a bit more on the door and the shepherd tonight. Um, and it's this illustration um, about shepherd and shepherding and sheep. And it can all become a bit of a... Of course, Jesus is using an allegory. It's almost like a... Um, yeah, it's a picture. You know, it's an illustration that Israel, the people of Israel would have understood very well. So he says, I am the good shepherd. This is the fifth I am statement. In verse 9, Jesus had said, I am the door of the sheep. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So Jesus is using these cultural illustrations here of a shepherd in his sheepfold. And John spoke a little bit about the sheepfold last week and what that would mean in Middle Eastern uh, terms. Before we get into this, the important thing to say is in chapter 9 we saw Jesus being confronted by the Pharisees and, and the blind man, beggar, who uh, had no mercy shown him by the Pharisees, who were supposed to be the responsible shepherds. They were the ones who were supposed to be directing people to God. They were to be the shepherds, those who would shepherd the people of God and lead them to him. But quite clearly they weren't doing that and Jesus refers to them as uh, hirelings. He uses the word stranger, robber, thieves who break in and steal. They enter the sheepfold another way. They climb up and try and <coughs> enter the fold <coughs> illegally, <coughs> if you like. Not through the door. But what's so significant about this shepherd illustration? Like I said, these shepherds of Israel, they were, they'd been entrusted with the people. You know, they'd been entrusted. God had put the people into their care, but they were leading the people astray. They were serving their own carnal interests. And we saw this in the previous chapter. Um, but Jesus appears to this blind man beggar as the good shepherd. You know, he really, well, he heals him and he shows him the light. You know, he shows him, he directs him to God. And this was in response, Jesus bringing this shepherd um, illustration in response to how the para, how the I know called them parasites the Pharisees treated the blind man <clears throat> and and we can see quite a passionate illustration here of a shepherd um, but it's important we understand this in context of 
of, of the passage and, and scripture. And really the image of God as Israel's shepherd goes way back to Genesis. We see it in Genesis 49. Uh, we read the mighty God of Jacob, the shepherd, the stone of Israel. And this continues right through the Psalms. Of course, we all know Psalm 23. And we're going to get to that in a bit later. But Psalm 80 also, uh, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who dwell between the cherubim, shine forth. And Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures and leads me by still waters. But then we come to a very important prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 34. For thus says the Lord, indeed I myself will search for my sheep. And seek them out as a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day he is among his scattered sheep. So will I seek out my sheep and deliver them from all the places where they were scattered on a cloudy and dark day. I will feed my flock and will make them lie down, says the Lord. I will seek what was lost and bring back what was driven away. Bind up the broken and strengthen what was sick. I just think this is a wonderful picture of the ministry of Jesus, you know. And the promised Messiah was seen as this shepherd. And of course this was prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus, before the advent of Jesus. That he would come to seek and save the lost. Uh, But we read in the Gospels, um, you know, Jesus looked upon the multitudes and he had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They were scattered in the wilderness. They were lost. And they were blind. And they shouldn't have been. There should have been responsible shepherds directing them to God, but they weren't. And this is why Jesus brings this whole discourse, because it's such an important thing for the people to understand. And he was speaking in the courts of the temple at the Feast of Tabernacles, I believe. And, and these few chapters together, this is, these are just, there's like three teachings, and this is the last one. And this is like the most important thing I think Jesus had to say, especially to the, the Pharisees. But all, he was calling them out, but he also wanted the people to understand uh, the, the role of a responsible shepherd. And of course, Luke 15, we all know the parable of the lost sheep. You know, when Jesus, speaking of the shepherd who would pursue that one sheep, leaving the 99 to save that one sheep and to, to bring him back to the fold, which is just a wonderful illustration of what, how God has pursued us, you know, when we were lost and wandering and scattered. Then the joy in heaven over that repentant sinner. You know, the joy. The shepherd goes back and celebrates with his friends and he rejoices that he's found this one sheep. It's a wonderful picture. So Jesus continues to speak about the role of this shepherd here in chapter 10. And in context, I mean, John mentioned this a little bit last week, but you'd see in these areas the sheep would go into the sheepfold at night, which was just a low stone wall. And with a just an entrance and the shepherd would be the literally the door, the entrance to the fold, to the sheepfold. And the sheep would come past the shepherd. And this it would be it wouldn't be one fold for one flock of sheep. Every single flock would be led to this fold at night to protect them from wolves and um, whatever 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 else they might be at risk from. And the shepherd would stand there with his staff and he'd drop his rod, his staff as each sheep passed him, checking them for wounds and just checking their general well-being. And then they would come into this fold. Uh, and often, sometimes, I mean, there'd be under-shepherds, but sometimes the shepherds would, would sleep with their own sheep. You know, such was the bond that they had. Um, and, then, and then the next morning, 
he'd call them out by name. The sheep would recognize the voice of their own shepherd. In, in you know, hundreds of sheep, they'd recognize the voice of their shepherd. <clears throat> and this was, this was the picture. You know, and Jesus said in, in what we were looking at last week, anyone comes through me, he will be saved. And obviously we have this picture of the fold uh, almost representing you know, the, the kingdom and, and how he, how he uh, provides the, the, the way, the door for us to, to go through. Um, and it's a wonderful picture of the salvation and the protective care provided by Jesus. I don't want to cover the same ground, but it's important that we get the context of the shepherd and the sheepfold because this is central to what Jesus is, 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 is talking about in this, this discourse here in chapter 10. You know, so we see these Pharisees, these hirelings. Um, and this is the contrast. You know, this is the contrast of the good shepherd. He's spoken about, he's calling these, these Pharisees out as hirelings. You know, people who didn't own the flock. They didn't act responsibly. It was almost like they were disinterested, serving their own interests. You know, they weren't acting like a shepherd would, being responsible for his own flock. Very valuable um, for the shepherd uh, w- w- was his flock uh, and, but Jesus doesn't just claim to be any shepherd he, he's the good shepherd in contrast to these bad shepherds to these irresponsible shepherds Jesus is the good shepherd he's the one prophesied in Ezekiel 34 he's coming in fulfilment of the messianic shepherd <laughs> the messiah shepherd in Ezekiel 34 and he's really you know he's spoken in parable he's alluded to this in the in the scriptures before, but now he's saying, I am. I am the ego am I. I am the good shepherd. I am God. I am the God who shepherded Israel. There's no difference. I am he. And there's two words for good in the Greek. <clears throat> and one just refers to a moral goodness. You know, he's a good person. He's a good guy. But that's not the word used here. The word is kalos. And it just doesn't just refer to moral goodness. It means to be beautiful, to be magnificent, to be excellent on every level. And this is the word that's applied, uh, that Jesus is using here. Um, you know, and remember this whole discourse, before we get into it, is in response to the previous chapter. In response to the blind beggar who was lost and needed the good shepherd. And the hirelings, the strangers, thieves and robbers who break into the fold, irresponsible shepherds. But in contrast, Jesus is the good shepherd. He's the good shepherd of Israel. So... That's the context, but if Jesus is our good shepherd, how do we respond to that? How does that help us relate to God, understanding Jesus as our good shepherd? What characteristics of God does this display? And how does knowing Jesus as our good shepherd help us to relate to God better and understand his character? And there's three distinct characteristics of the shepherd and his relationship to the sheep or his ministry to the sheep that I want to speak about tonight. And bring out of this passage. There's many more. We could go through Psalm 23 <laughs> in great detail and just pick out um, all these things. But specifically in, in, in context of this passage, from really from verse 11 to verse 18. Um, so please follow with me. Um, I'm going to try and put as many of the other cross references on the on the PowerPoint. So try and stay in John John 10 verses 11 to 18. And the first characteristic of the good shepherd we see. In verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. So he follows this statement up. He qualifies this statement immediately. Who is the good shepherd? The good shepherd is the one who gives his life for the, 
sheep. <laughs> this is the ultimate um, qualification, if you like, of the good shepherd. And, you know, a shepherd was responsible for his sheep. The shepherds in this part of the world, they were in battle with wolves, mountain lions, even bears. David talks about fighting off bears. Um, Amos, the prophet, he speaks about the shepherd rescuing legs and a piece of an ear out of a, a lion's mouth. Um, and that's in the context of um, the masters whose flock they would belong to, the shepherds that they used Unless they would bring back evidence of a killed sheep, you know, a sheep that had perished, they, they'd possibly be accused of stealing that sheep. So they would actually bring back evidence of, a, of, a, of an eaten animal, a member of the flock. So this was, you know, something Amos talks about. But the, the, the point is that they, they risked their lives to protect the flock. And to the shepherd, it was the most natural thing to risk his life for the flock. But Jesus was not speaking generally here about a shepherd risking his life for the sheep but he I think we can see that more specifically he has his own death on the cross in view his sacrificial death and the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep this word for life it's not again just the word for bios biological life it speaks about the soul Isaiah 53 speaks about the Messiah pour out his soul unto death his whole life his whole person it's not just the physical pain of his death, the nails, the thorns, the physical suffering, but his own soul suffered with a, a sin-bearing anguish as well. So it speaks about the enormity of his, of his sacrifice, not just the physical pain. And this tells us, when I was looking at this, really you see, it's almost a paradox, but you see the good shepherd becoming the lamb. You see the good shepherd becoming the lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. Peter talks about how the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish or spot. So notice that the shepherd's death would normally have spelt disaster for the flock. Absolute disaster. But in this case it spells life. The death of Jesus spells life for his flock. That's the first distinction. We read in verse 18... Jesus says, no one takes it from me, this life, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from the Father. So it was an act of obedience to the Father, but it was also an act of love for his sheep. And the point is, Jesus was willing. It wasn't just an occupational hazard. Jesus was willing, as the good shepherd, to lay down his life, to give his life, it says, to give his life for the sheep, to save us. No other shepherd would or could have done this. And there's a passage in Hebrews 13 that talks about the great shepherd of the sheep and his sacrifice. It says, Now may the God of peace who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Jesus, the Lamb of God, he bled and he died to save us from judgment, but for a purpose. And the purpose is talked about here, that we might become his, that we might be made complete in every good work. God saves us for a purpose. He doesn't just save us. He saves us for a purpose. That he presents his flock, his own flock, washed clean, sanctified, presented, presented to the Father, without spot or blemish, as Jesus was. 
So are we. So do we understand that in order to save us and present us holy to God, the shepherd of the sheep had to give his own life and become the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And this is the first characteristic of the good shepherd. And the question I want to ask, and it's the question I'm going to ask after every characteristic that we see here, is do we relate to God on those terms? Do we see the good shepherd as the sacrificial lamb? Our sin offering. So the second characteristic of the good shepherd we see in verse 14. I am the good shepherd and I know my sheep and I'm known by my own. So the good shepherd knows his sheep. He gives his life for his sheep and he knows his sheep. And so again we need to say this in the context of the shepherd and the sheepfold. So like I said in these villages and these small towns every shepherd would bring his sheep into this fold they'd all be in the fold together each shepherd would call out his own sheep by name the shepherd spoke and the sheep knew their master's voice no mistake they'd have I think John mentioned it last week they'd have certain calls certain names certain ways they would um, call out the sheep the way the sheep would identify the voice of their master and this is why the sheep won't follow the voice of a stranger They're going to recognise the voice of their shepherd. And then the shepherd leads out his own sheep from the sheepfold by name, one by one, to green pastures and still waters. You know, which is, again, a a wonderful picture Psalm 23 gives us. So we're talking about two things, aren't we? We're talking about how Jesus knows his flock, and which is us, and how we know him, or how he is known by, by his flock, by us. How do we relate to him? And the Bible says it is God who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And this is how we know and comprehend God. How we have the knowledge of his full and perfect character in the face of Jesus Christ. But we're not just talking about a head knowledge or having a mere knowledge or an intellectual understanding of Jesus. Thinking about how God knows us or how he discloses himself to us psalm 139 for me has always been a very comforting um, psalm it's a very intimate it speaks about this very intimate way god knows us it's quite wonderful language from verse one. O lord you have searched me and known me you know my sitting down and my rising up you understand my thought afar off you comprehend my path and my lying down you are acquainted with all my ways for there is not a word on my tongue but behold O Lord you know it altogether. verse 16 your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed and in your book they were all written the days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them before we lived our life he knows every single day <laughs> that we're ever going to live on this earth before we go to be with him he has a, a well, a, a, a complete foreknowledge of us, a foreknowledge, an eternal knowledge, not a temporal knowledge as we understand things, but before every aspect of our life has been lived, God knows it. And I think that's quite a comforting thought, but if I'm honest, it's a bit daunting as well that God knows us in such an intimate way <laughs> when sometimes we can... <clears throat> 
we can forget that, you know, when we sin, when we don't walk in obedience to God, when we wander, when we stray, we can forget how intimately God knows us, how intimate that relationship is, certainly from his side, anyway. And this word is a, probably a word for know that you've came across a bit if you, if you, if you study the Bible. Know in the New Testament is this word gnosko in the Greek. And it speaks about, yes it speaks about a knowledge, but it speaks about a knowledge gained through experience. It's a knowledge that comes from being in close proximity to the thing known. So you have to spend time <laughs> with, with the object. It's not just a, an intellectual understanding of, well, yeah, the Good Shepherd. It's, it's based on our proximity to, uh, to what we know. And it's more than just knowledge. It's an intimate experience. But simply put, it's, it's a knowledge based on relationship. What's being described there is, is a relationship. It's not a head knowledge or anything intellectual. But let's also see this word know in the context of, of John chapter 10 as well. We see in verse 15, Jesus speaks about his own relationship to the Father. It's almost identical language in verse 15. He says, as the Father knows me, even so I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. See the connection there with, with verse 14. I know my sheep and I'm known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father. So he uses the relationship he has with his Father to help us understand the extent of how he knows us. The love with which he is loved, so are we. And this is such a wonderful picture here. Um, Jesus doesn't have to elaborate any more than that because we know how the Father loves the Son. (laughs) And this is how Jesus loves us and he wants us to know this and again in verse 17 it's almost like an interpretive key (laughs) because we see in verse 17 therefore my father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again so we have something that begins with knowledge and ends with love it's the again it's this relationship God has with the father And it's in the context of laying down his life for the sheep. Therefore the father loves him. And it's the same loving relationship the father has for him. That he wants to have with us. And he prays a little bit later on in chapter 17 doesn't he? That the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. That was one of his last prayers to the the father about us. His will, his desire for us. So the good shepherd loves his sheep with the same love with which he is loved. And this is what's implied here. And through his death, the shepherd has made us his own. He wants to lead us by still waters, to give us peace. He wants to provide for us, to heal us. And he wants to sanctify us. So how do we respond to this love? Here tonight. And Jesus tells us in verse 27. Again, he repeats this statement about about him knowing his sheep. With a slight difference. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And do you see the relationship there between verse 14 and verse 27? In verse 14, the response to Jesus knowing us is how we know him. But then we see that translates into verse 27. My sheep hear my voice. This is how we know him. First of all, we hear his voice. 
And secondly, we follow him. This is how we know God. This is how we know God. And he's giving us all this information. We don't have to wonder, how do we know God? How, how could we possibly know and comprehend God? Well, we start off by hearing him, and then we follow him. It's, again, getting back to the very basic relationship the sheep has with the shepherd. <laughs> we hear him, and we follow him. And just taking this a little bit further, we see in John chapter 14, He who has my commandments... And keeps them, Jesus says. It is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and will manifest myself to him. That word manifest, it talks about God revealing himself to us. Full disclosure. In the fullness of his character, he wants to reveal himself to us. Fully, you know. And again, we see the connection between walking in obedience And Jesus manifesting himself to us, his life. This is how he knows us and reveals himself to us. And this is how we know him, through obedience. How we have full knowledge of God. How we comprehend his loving kindness towards us through keeping, through having his commandments and keeping them. Do we know and relate to God on those terms? Through obedience, through loving obedience. It's not an obligation we feel, a command we follow. We see what the good shepherd has done for us and we see his love and his care, his protective care and the salvation he gives us through the offering of his own life, becoming the Lamb of God. That's how we respond in obedience. We see the love the shepherd has for the sheep. We see the bond, the extent of the relationship the shepherd has with the sheep and we follow him. It's it's a response to his goodness. It's a response to the salvation that we have. We need to know the Good Shepherd through loving relationship. We need to hear his voice. Are we led by him? Do we follow our Good Shepherd? Or is it just a head knowledge that we have of Jesus? Often, having been saved, it can become, again, about head knowledge. It can become about reading or doing or acting or ministry or works or whatever it is. But do we get back to that loving relationship? Back to that first love where we first heard the voice of our shepherd and we responded to that voice and we followed him in a very simple, simple way. So the good shepherd knows his sheep and is known by his sheep. The third and final characteristic I want us to look at tonight is in verse 16. Jesus says, And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. So the final characteristic I want to look at is how the good shepherd unites his sheep. So he dies for his sheep, he knows his sheep, and he unites his sheep. And I guess in context this was very hard for the Jews to understand. (laughs) Another fold outside of Israel. Who's he talking about? A flock outside of the Jewish fold. A flock outside of the nation of Israel will hear the voice of the great shepherd. And follow him, both Jew and Gentile being one flock. Led by one shepherd. So the good shepherd unites his sheep. And we see Paul talking about this in Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity 
that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. So first, our unity in Christ is positional. There's a few ways in which we're going to look at our unity and what it means, but the first thing that we need to understand is that our unity in Christ is positional through accepting Jesus Christ as our Lord and Saviour. Both Jew and Gentile will be will be reconciled into one body. One body. His body raised in the newness of life, in his likeness. So through faith in Jesus, Gentiles have a reconciled position with Israel. Through faith we have peace with God as one new man. No longer separated by our sin. That's our position in Christ. Jew, Gentile, makes no difference. Through faith in Christ, we're one. Our unity with Christ is also eternal. Extends beyond the temporal. Which means it's a reality now, outside of time. The Apostle Peter says, when the great shepherd appears in glory. So when he returns for us, or when we go to be with him, whichever comes first. We will receive a crown of glory. That does not fade away. How awesome is that? One day we will all enjoy the glorious unity that Jesus shares in heaven with the Father. And again, it's as Jesus prays in chapter 17 that we all may be one as you, Father, are in me, that they may also be one in us. And again, Revelation 7, Jesus is portrayed as this lamb who will shepherd his people and lead them to fountains of living water. And this is our good shepherd on that day when we will receive our new bodies, when he will lead us to fountains of of living water. And we can all look forward to that with great expectation, and we should, with joy, you know, to a time when the great shepherd will lead his flock home. So it's important that we understand these things. Our unity with God is positional. But it's not just a theological concept, unity. It's important that we understand the theology of our unity in Christ. It's important that we understand our eternal position in Christ. But I think it's just as important, if not more important, actually, because Jesus, it was one of the last things he prayed for, (laughs) that we understand our unity in the corporate sense, how we are to be united as a church, as the body of Christ. And that's really the final point, that our unity in Christ is corporate. And King David sings, doesn't he, about how good and how pleasant it is that the brethren dwell together in unity. You know? And it's quite clearly God's desire that we live as believers in unity with one another. And this is the work of the Good Shepherd in the lives of his flock. Now, this is the work he wants to do in us. And Paul makes this important point in two key addresses to the church. And the first one is in Philippians chapter 2 probably quite familiar with it. Verse 1 says, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. We also see in Ephesians 4, 
chapter 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavouring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. There's seven ones there, a lot of ones. (laughs) But looking at those two addresses to the church, where do you think the emphasis is? Looks like it's on us, quite firmly (laughs) on us to keep the unity of the spirit not to create the unity God's already done that we've seen our positional unity in Christ but we keep the unity that we have through the spirit the fellowship I love that the fellowship of the spirit I love that term we keep the fellowship of the spirit so as God is one and as followers of Jesus we have been baptised into one body and we're also to be one relationally and that's not easy that comes with its challenges boy it's tough. You know, I think it's unity in the church is, is one of the hardest things to get right. It requires us to be, first of all, sincere, but also very cohesive in our relationships with one another. And that's quite the opposite, I think, of sometimes how we feel. You know, it requires genuine love. And as Paul says, it requires us to be like-minded as well, lowly and gentle, so there's a humility That needs to precede our unity. Without humility, you're not going to have unity. You're not going to esteem others better than yourself. You're not going to bear with one another. We endeavour. We endeavour to keep the unity of the spirit. There is an onus on us. But, you know, be encouraged and thank God that it is God who works in us. It is God who works in us, enabling us to keep that spirit of unity. It's God working in us and through us. And he wants to keep the bond of peace in his church he wants us to do that but we must also endeavour to do so we need to make a practical effort I think that's the point and we need to be intentional are we doing this are we intentional about keeping the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace I think it's very easy to be selfish almost without realising it and quite conceited as Paul says here and these are the warnings these are the things that we need to watch out for But it is so important if we're to be united as one flock that we hear the voice of our shepherd. If we hear the voice of our shepherd, we will be led by him and we will follow him. And he calls us every day to see his example and follow it. Every single day to be led by him. And it's crucial to our fellowship and the unity of his church that we hear his voice. And if we do hear his voice, there will be unity. There will be unity. And again, I've mentioned this prayer a few times. John 17, verse 23, Jesus says, I in them and you in me, that they may be, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. And notice the desire there for Jesus, uh, the desire of Jesus for his church, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may believe And that the world may know. He repeats that twice. But know what? What are the world to know (laughs) through the unity of the church? What 
What does that mean? Quite simply, that Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The purpose of corporate unity, I think, and also alluding to what Jesus says here, is directly related to the witness of the church. It's not just an internal cohesion that God wants us to have. It's directly related to the witness of the church. If the outside, if the world don't see unity in the church, and quite often they don't, then how is that going to reflect the character of Christ? How is that going to reflect God? Because God is one. With him is there, is, there, is, there is perfect unity. And we have perfect unity in Christ. And I think it's so easy to forget the unity we have in Christ. But we are to represent and reflect that unity in our relationships with one another. And that is tough. But that is the witness we have to the world. That is what the world is to see, the corporate unity. It's directly related to how the lost world around us, around us sees, sees the gospel. And our unity with one another, like I said before, it finds its identity in Christ. And, and it can only exist if we obey Christ. We can't make this unity. We can't create unity through initiatives or, you know, these are all good things. But if we don't see our identity in Christ, we're not gonna, that's not going to extend into the corporate. That's not going to extend into our relationships. So it's important we understand our positional unity. But it is a natural overflow of the Spirit. If we have a loving relationship with Jesus, unity. It's not something we have to, not something we have to create. It's something we keep. Something we already have through our relationship with Christ, through the indwelling Spirit of God. And that's what God wants to produce in us through his Spirit. Love, peace, forbearance, kindness, gentleness. You know, that we love each other, that we bear with one another the way God calls us to. And how do we do this practically? Like I said, every day we look to Jesus. <laughs> we follow the shepherd, because he's good. We have to hear him. We need to follow in his footsteps, as Peter says, and we need to learn from him. And Jesus said, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. We learn from him. Amen. So just to summarise, the character of Jesus as our good shepherd is marked by these three particular ministries to his sheep. These aspects of his relationship to us. He dies for them. He knows them and he unites them. And this is how Jesus wants us to relate to him. That we grow in our, first that we grow in our understanding of him and in our adoration and love for him, but also for each other in our relationships. And the last thing, really, notice that it's something that we haven't mentioned, but notice that how are we portrayed in this illustration? We're the sheep. Lowly sheep. You can't get more lowly or more humble than a sheep. <laughs> and I think that's important, you know, that we learn to depend on the good shepherd they don't have anything in and of themselves they have no strength they're led 100% that's how we are to be we're to be led by the good shepherd so we learn from him and see how tenderly he cares for us for his flock and how he provides for his flock and we've been given Psalm 23 to remind us of how God cares for his flock <laughs> I think that's why God gave us that psalm it's a wonderful picture that's all it is few verses to illustrate how God is the good shepherd, how Jesus is the good shepherd and how he cares for his flock.